Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About The Weather, political discussion from the outside may just look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk about news and politics. Yeah, um, and like the BBC, we shall be talking about the no march that did not happen. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to accord the Remain march, all of the pomp and ceremony that news organisations afford to every other march. Yep. Um, Unless they're a fascist march. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're all kinds of... Oh, look at these legitimate concerns all coming down my street. It's like that fucking uh, anti-far march um, to stop the DFLA uh, two weekends ago, uh, or last weekend, um, had little or no coverage. And on the same day as the Remain march, I saw, it was just the Manchester Evening News, but they still had a front page thing of 12 fascists being escorted by a phalanx of 40 police. Yeah. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, well, you know, that's how they do. (laughs) That's how they do, but yeah, <laughs> that just, march looked fucking cringy. And well, it's like it was all alternating between being really cringed out by some of their placards mm. and then genuinely disgusted by some. Like you saw that French couple wearing stars that said French on them. Yeah, it's like oh, really? What was it about not taking anti-Semitism with the appropriate gravitas? Yeah. You know, like, oh fuck it all. The thing is, I'm I'm still torn because, like, I voted Remain. I think there are really important things contained within the Brexit debate that still need to be accounted for, covered, and fought back against. Mm. I just cannot stand the tone. I, oh, I, God, I, I just can't stand the the timber of the way that this has all been been framed. Like the the centrist like liberal kind of people have the, the the ones at the top have and then commentators have used brexit to kind of overlay a new political terrain I've, I've talked about this before like they've used it to overlay this new political terrain that benefits them uh-huh. because it's them as the leaders of one side yeah. and the conservatives on the other and it like excluding the left again right. excluding other different viewpoints on on the EU and how how this whole thing is going to go down. Mm. And you know that when it comes to to time, there's no, like, civil disobedience. There's going to be nothing. Even even if if Theresa May does, like, properly go for a hard border, there's no way any of those people are going to be there laying down. Oh, no, no. Stopping buses and um, aircraft and things like that deporting people. It's, It's maddening. I think it was Adam Bolton saying, like, how polite the whole march was. Yeah. It's like, I imagine it was really polite. I imagine they turned up on time, maybe five minutes early, and they made sure that they were ready to leave on time or a bit early so they could beat the traffic home. (laughs) Because that's what protest is. There were were reports of uh, middle-class couples drinking in pubs before... Before the sun <laughs> no, was joking. passing on, yeah, <laughs> drinking in Revolting. pubs, drinking in pubs beforehand, and then getting lost. Like, that's <laughs> kind of part of the fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but it looked fucking terrible. There's nothing else left for this week apart from a whole bunch of racisms. Yeah. But that's you know Britain. That's all a kind of thing that can be uh, contained yeah. in one episode. I think it's part of the ongoing landscape of 2018. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was mostly concerned this week with. A series of tweets, like you you usually are. I was, and everybody else on left Twitter was as well. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It was uh, by a lady named Frances Wheatman. Yep. Who is former Labour councillor in Newcastle, now an independent councillor, because anti-Semitism was so rampant. Yep. That she had to leave the Labour Party, but keep her job that Mm -hmm. the Labour Party had got her. Yep. She's um, she's an economist. She's an award-winning economist. An award-winning economist, economist, as she went out of her way to point out. Yeah. She's been studying economics for 10 years. Doesn't she have a master's degree in economic history? Uh, she, I do not know what she has. She has a BA in economics and politics. While an undergraduate, she worked for HSBC. Uh, she dropped out of the finance sector to become an educational filmmaker and writer. And in 2017, oh, in 2016, sorry, she won the inaugural New Statesman and Virago Prize for Politics and Economics. She won it for her book, uh, Whose Model Is It Anyway? Why Economists Need to Face Up to Reality. And she started on 
Uh, there's nothing that, like... There's no, nothing, no, 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 no. There's it, nothing... It, it, no, no, no. There's no, nothing com- wrong. No, no, no. Any writing on economics, it couldn't just fuck off. It's all really horrible and boring and shit and <laughs> terrible and worthless. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be. I would recommend, actually, if, if, if you don't like economics that much, but you do like catty... Catty comebacks. Mm. Um, Philip Morawski, um I can't remember the name of the book. Um, uh, Whose crisis in it is it anyway? I think it's called. Um, God, no, it's fantastic. It's really good. Yeah. It's um, kind of about the modelling of neoliberalism and, and super gossipy and super catty. Okay, for an economist. <laughs> um, okay, so that, she wrote... I've probably got that that book name wrong, by the way. But yeah, Philip Morawski. Okay, very good. Um, she wrote a little thread mm. called. Why neoliberalism doesn't mean much, and we shouldn't use the term. Didn't someone do that a while ago as well? Everybody has been doing it forever, since Corbyn came in, weirdly enough, yeah, um, and started drawing attention to opposition to neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have been saying, well, it doesn't even mean anything anyway. Yeah. Which presumably would make Jeremy Corbyn, like, would disarm him completely, would mean that he's rebelling against nothing and therefore is harmless. Mm. So, well, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, she begins the thread. Neoliberalism technically means new liberalism. It does. Neo means new. Yeah. And liberalism means thing. The Oxford English Dictionary <laughs> describes <laughs> neoliberalism as... Uh, also, the other thing that, before I start, new liberalism was actually a thing. It's mm. the kind of modern liberalism that came in around the First World War, and it was what the Liberal Party kind of... It was a limited state interference in the economy with pensions and things like that Mm. very like nowhere near the welfare state Mm. but it was the idea of making payments from state coffers to people okay it was literally a thing already Mm. so you know we've already started off great um it is a term that's grown in popularity since the rise of corbyn's labor in 2015 and that is why i think the term is pointless so that's how she begins the thread that it wasn't used before then yeah when was the first time you heard because okay like you've done you you did a lot of economics. I have, yes. Um, I haven't, and as I said earlier, I hate it. First time I heard it was probably Shock Doctrine. Yeah, yeah. That's probably. I mean, it's. But that was a while ago now. Yeah, I mean, it was used kind of a lot earlier than that. When, well, yeah, sure, when but that's the, like, yeah. like I but was you know, aware what, that's, of it. That's then. where you're yeah. aware of it, and that's a lot of the kind of early 2000s, like anti globalization stuff. Oh. That's when the term started to be linked as a series of phenomena. That could not that were explained yeah. politi- how they were explained politically. They started linking in a lot of things like climate change, gentrification, all that kind of thing. Um, she began this thread and like it span off into a number of different arguments. But one of the the thing that really kind of paralysed me, mm. and I guess that was the point. Mm. Uh, she's very much. She seems very disingenuous. Mm-hmm. Um, at one oh yeah, po- she's 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 getting ready to. She, well, she's auditioning for a job at. One of the many, like inverted commas, left wing papers. Yes, that's yeah. what she's doing. It's when does your new statesman column come in? That yeah. kind of thing. Um, at one point, she brings up the fact that, as as we said, she spent ten plus years studying economics, mm-hmm. and she's won an award. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to focus entirely on what she wrote, but that that bit really mm. stuck out to me. How can a person who, for better or worse, she also said she hadn't heard it while she was in the city, and it's mm. like that's far more explicable because yeah. you know the ruling ideas of the the ideas of the ruling class are the main ideas in every epoch etc etc mm. but um she said it's not a basic economic term it was never once mentioned in the years i spent working finance in the city or during my 10 plus years of study of economics <laughs> sorry it, i didn't hear it once working in my years my years working in finance in the city like all kinds of labor councillors to newcastle <laughs> <laughs> It kind of amazed me. It was just like, it was obviously part of her general bad faith yeah. stuff. But I started thinking about how, in her admittedly limited tweet thread, she yeah. started conceptualising neoliberalism as at least a nominal liberal mm. and member of the Labour Party. Mm. Like, how did she get this far? In and of itself, she wrote what she wrote made very little sense. And even less for anybody actually versed in neoliberalism, which the left are. Mm. It is the main thing that they that we are dealing with right now. Um, she had to put more effort into actually avoiding and editing what she wrote to support her kind of ideas, her thesis, mm. that neoliberalism was meaningless, mm. than she would have actually looking up what it was and its kind of effects. Yeah. Um, but as I usually do, I take 
bad faith pronouncements, and I put way too much effort into assuming that they're good faith. <laughs> um, so, like, what? How come she doesn't know anything about neoliberalism? Mm-hmm. What is she missing? Okay. All right. So I'm going to do a brief history mm-hmm. of neoliberalism. Okay. Copyright me. No one else has ever written a brief history of neoliberalism. No. I want to be clear about that. There is no, no, I've never heard. Nobody from Gillingham. <laughs> no, no uh, economic geographer from Gillingham has no. ever written anything Definitely called not. a brief history of neoliberalism. Right. No. no. Um, so we just constantly write about host houses and nothing else. <laughs> There was some guy writing about oast houses, but I don't know what happened to him after that. Yeah, he just went off. Yeah. Off the deep end. <laughs> Got a decider. Um, so Wheatman started, in economics, the terms rose in popularity in the 1970s and 80s, a shorthand for those who advocate privatisation policies. Now, mm-hmm. David Harvey, again, don't know who he is, um, <laughs> described neoliberalism more broadly as the doctrine that market exchange is an ethic in itself capable as, of acting as a guide for all human action. This is the thing we deal with now. But as a theory... Neoliberalism originates in the 1930s among economists that criticised the Keynesian responses to the Great Depression. Mm. Modern or new liberalism, which was kind of exemplified by Roosevelt's New Deal, Mm. that was a compromise the state made with the threat of economic implosion and the strengthening working class organisation. But more far-sighted capitalists had realised that in order to ensure that capitalism survived, they had to incorporate state-led policies like full employment, social welfare, and managed economic growth at home with a renewed move towards kind of imperial protectionism. So ensuring that the remains of the European empires got their full resources from them. Yeah. Previously, like the British Empire had been well on free trade because it had benefited from the kind of trade in services and insurance and things like that mm-hmm. and guaranteeing things. But after the war, they're really looking for primary suppliers of mm. course that then coincides with decolonization and independence movements it all gets a bit messy mm. um it has that kind of liberalism has the strategic benefit of pacifying the uptake for like radical calls for more widespread ownership um and the capitalists were ap- acquiescing to surrendering some of their surplus to maintain the structural soundness of the profit system overall this intensified in the UK after the war to large-scale state ownership of utilities and industry with a greater incorporation of working-class organisation into state functions, so inviting unions to the table. Yeah. All through this, though, there was a fringe group of economists, political scientists and capitalists lurking at the margins. Friedrich Ron Hayek, Milton Friedman, uh, Ludwig von Mises, among others, founded the Mont Pelerin Society in 1947. They generally called themselves classical liberals and looked towards the free market, individual liberty and anti-collectivism. They regarded humans as greedy little piggies with appetites and consumer power, but not much else. Mm. Giving these people, the ones without property and therefore without a stake, would breed their own selfish interests and desires into the perfect conduit between the market and need. Mm. They can act in the market, these people rationally according to price signals but they cannot be allowed to direct or plan because Mm. that would lead to totalitarianism Mm. Um, they were generally regarded as quite cranky um, through the 40s and 50s um, but they had a very strong central sense of purpose and clearly defined enemies Mm. they knew who they were fighting and they knew what they were fighting for Um, they didn't look to do any of this fighting by democratic means but to convince society's intellectuals who are perceived to have been won over by socialism, or at least, you know, mm. social democracy. Yeah. To quote Hayek, once the more active part of the intellectuals have been converted to a set of beliefs, the process by which these become generally accepted is almost automatic and irresistible. Moving to Britain specifically, um, this kind of courting of the intellectuals st- uh, generally happened through the Institute of Economic Affairs, which was set up in 1955. Uh, linking up with the CIA-funded Institute for the Study of Conflict and started producing pamphlets and giving talks to very, very small rooms of like entrepreneurs and, and investors mm. and uh, owners about um, monitoring union activity and the threat of uh, subversion within industry. They mean unions. Yeah, They're talking about communists, but they mean unions. Mm. Um so this Montpellerin Society kind of promulgates this whole alliance of right-wing think tanks, um, generally through the prism of anti-communism, which, like even the social democracies, were opposed to hmm. um, and were fighting anyway. Um, but they set up like a shitload of think tanks. I mean, like hmm. loads. We think we have a lot now. 
we probably have a lot, but this was like in such a short space of time, they set up like just three examples, like the Centre for Policy Studies in 1974, the Adam Smith Institute. Um, that's a couple of the more well-known ones among yeah. thousands across the world. American yeah. Enterprise Institute, Heritage Institute, uh, the Manhattan Institute as well, all kind of linked to this central Mont Pelerin society. Um, and they generally kind of courted, like I say, they courted small groups of industrialists and the ownership class, particularly the financial fraction. Now, the financial fraction of capital had been kind of marginalised under um, social democracy yeah. because you have capital controls. You have the Bretton Woods Agreement, which freezes uh, uh, exchange rates. The exchange rates were set. You could, mm. They wouldn't float up and down like they do now. Um, and they were all, all the international trade was tied to a gold standard that was tied to the dollar, mm. right? So it's all very rigid. You can't make a lot of money as a stockbroker yeah. from like 45 up until probably 19, early 1970s. Mm. It's not a very desirable job to go into. But um, in 1973, Nixon kind of abandons the gold standard, abandons this fixed exchange rate mechanism, and starts to um that starts to allow more money to flow and therefore more money to flow into the hands of like the finance sector hmm. um this has increased this increases their power but of course they don't have the kind of union or or uh, state owned inroads into the state like into the state yeah. they're not state owned they're all entirely private they don't yeah. have sit downs with ministers right. they probably have more access than you or i do but they don't have that special relationship that industry does mm. um on the other side like industries like manufacturing and public services um they're very happy with the situation in the kind of welfare state like post-war welfare state they were never keen on introducing new risk and free market competition into their trades because they were bailed out whenever they got into trouble. Like British Leyland and Rover. I think Rover was fully nationalised at some point in the 60s. Mm. British Leyland received loads of bailouts. That's perfect if you're... And again, if we've talked about it before, but when these industries were nationalised, they kept on the top people in yeah. those jobs. They're secure jobs, and they're never going to go away because the state won't allow them to. They will yeah. just pump in money until they need to. So they're not really the ideal crowd to hear neoliberalism's promises, mm. what it can do for them. Um, lower taxes, lower regulation and a more flexible workforce did offer some benefits to them, but they already had access to the state and they could already make their pleas directly. So mm. they don't need another political ideology to do their talking for them. Yeah. Um, no, it was finance and investors that neoliberalism really resonated with. Uh, the unprecedented growth of the post-war period towards the end of the 70s and begin uh, end of the 60s and beginning of the 70s had started to falter. The rate of profit was falling, and as such, less surplus was being invested in production, and more was being invested back into the finance sector. So, if you're a capitalist and you make a you have that profit, mm. you look to put it where you're, it's going to get you the most profit. Now, if you can be convinced to invest it in science and technology, the only way you're going to do that is if you're convinced that the return from that will be bigger. And obviously, it's not. So, you invest it in the stock market mm. because you're going to get a higher rate of return. Um, what happened was you have a lot of industrial figures in that time kind of moving to into the finance sector. They're kind of becoming investors mm. because of this need to find new sources, like a greater rate of return on their yeah. on their on their profits. Um, everything really starts to kick off with the crisis of the seventies. Several different short-term events hitting the post-war consensus at the same time. So the OPEC oil embargo. Uh, the cost of the Vietnam War and subsequently Nixon's, as we said, abandoning of exchange mm. rate controls and the gold standard. Um, along with medium-term consequences, um, oil production was in decline on the long term. It uh, reached a peak in like the late 60s and has declined since then. Mm. Um, the end of direct imperialism as well, um, with its kind of de facto access to primary resources, mm. um, that hits Britain hard, particularly. Um as well as like rapidly industrializing economies like uh, West Germany, Japan and South Korea, they've reconstructed and are kind of becoming competitors, mm. um, which squeezes profit margins even more. Um, you also have the emergence of the actual like decolonized states themselves in, in Africa and India, um, China less so. Um, they are starting to be able to have industrial economies themselves and compete on their own terms. So mm. there's a huge squeeze on profitability coming from a lot of different directions. 
Um, this all combined to kind of to cause a recession, um, particularly marked by stagflation, which is high inflation and high employment. That technically shouldn't happen. Um, if you have high unemployment, you have less wage bills, mm. and because the unions can ask for pay rises, you should have less to pay out in pay rises. So you shouldn't get high inflation at the same time. Mm. This happened <laughs> um, mainly because of oil, like oil, the oil price, like quadrupled overnight mm. in 1973. Um, it was real bad. Um, so yeah, going back to what Wheatman said, um, in its 1980s usage, neoliberalism has meant those who advocate privatization and has little to do with government spending on welfare payments. While these policies are linked ideologically, they aren't the same. I mean, aside from like. I said at the beginning of this, I'm giving a good faith, but that's plainly horseshit. Yeah. Have you ever seen a, uh, a, a, a I mean, let's say pre-Blair, hmm. a politician who advocated privatisation who also wasn't in favour of slashing the welfare bill? <laughs> there, it, it literally doesn't exist. <laughs> like, that's maddening. Yeah. That's maddening. It's insane. So, like, yeah, aside from the fact that this statement is weird and wrong, hmm. um... Those who advocated privatisation were tied up in a whole range of different like, political and social instruments as a response to this crisis. So neoliberalism has, is well embedded within government and industrial and like, owner, owner figures. Mm. Um, they offer several methods to uphold their power. Firstly, a monetary policy that em- emphasises anti-inflation over unemployment. This appeals to savers because... If you have money in the bank, if you have money stored anywhere, cap like mm. stored anywhere, um, inflation erodes how much it's worth. Yeah. That's like fairly like straightforward. Um, it undermines labour, of course, because it means that wages have to be held down. Mm. Uh, the more money you pump into the economy because you have to pay people more, the logic goes. Their logic went, which is not entirely accurate, but it's too complicated to go into here. Um, their whole focus was on keeping wages down, hmm. stopping unions from asking and being granted pay rises. Um, secondly, you have the shift from a taxed finance state to a debt financed one. So rather than the state raising taxes to in order to pay what it owns, to pay what like for new improvements to the state to the like society. Um, they move to a kind of debt finance one where they lower taxes, even where they can't afford to. They run up uh, deficits and they fund those deficits through debts which are leveraged in the private sector. Mm-hmm. What that does is rather than having all of the control over the money that the government is giving out handed to a democratic uh, state, mm. it's in the hands of private financiers. So as we said, as I said before, like... The finance sector has all this power, but doesn't have a, a, a say in government. Now they hold the the like purse strings, mm. basically. Um, thirdly, they have uh, key economic levers previously held by the state, such as exchange controls. They're either abandoned to the mar- to the market, or they're handed to private or unelected interests like the Bank of England. Mm. Uh, that's a, comes along a bit later, but is pure neoliberalism what Gordon Brown did with the Bank of England making the Bank of England independent mm. you're making you're taking economic decisions out of the purview of government of democrat of democracy mm. and putting it into unelected hands mm. they might be independent they might be like quangoish mm. but they're not directly elected yeah you will never get what the people want from no. that well because it's too important yeah it's too That's important the logic. but then the priorities are set by they're all bankers so their priorities are banker priorities yeah and fourthly and finally, um, a crackdown on worker power to put control of labour back in the hands of owners. Mm. Um, so these like these things that they offer are one solution. And, and Frances Wheatman seems to... She has a problem with really the origins of neoliberalism, how it comes to be. Neoliberalism was one proposed solution, mm. but it wasn't the only one. Like, we... Although we can laugh at like the left in the seventies, and we do hmm. a lot, hmm. um, they were really embedded in a lot of kind of formal and informal working class organisations. Like hmm. um, they were, it's really easy to laugh at like factionalism and everything. But there is a strong left presence through like all hmm. those institutions. Um, according to a historian of the CPGB, mm-hmm. Hmm, mm-hmm. okay, we'll take that 
as, as it comes. I think it's accurate. Uh, in the early 1970s, one in ten trade union officials was a member of the Communist Party. Um, leading bodies of the unions, most unions contained several communists. I, th- I can see that being true. Yeah, but they also from the stories of trans people would let them smoke their pipes. <laughs> So, you know, <laughs> take everything they say with a bit of salt. But it seems strange. I mean, that's a CPG it seems kind of true. Yeah, it seems uh, kind know, of true yeah. back then. That seems believable. Um, the National Union of Mine Workers had six communists on the executive committee, and the, T- the Transport and General Workers Union had ten. The president of the National Union of Teachers was a party member, as was the president of the Associated Society of Locomotive Engineers and Firemen, and the general secretary of the Technical, Administrative and Supervisory Section. Worker actions such as the Grunwick strike could command sport from different sectors, not just because the laws that would later prevent it were not in place, but because there was a sympathetic and workable coalition between workers in sectors Mm. that would allow them to demonstrate solidarity on behalf of one of them. Mm. This isn't just one sector having a really, like, train dri- like uh, tube drivers mm. having a really strong union and other sectors not having a thing there was a there was much more of a linkage between them all mm. it was yeah it's it solidarity works mm. um and it's worth remembering that there's nothing kind of inevitable about neoliberalism it wasn't just because of the ideas of hayek and etc they didn't just come to the uk um rolled out they weren't just rolled out because they were successful yeah you know they were infiltrated over time um they had prepared kind of sympathetic politicians ready to implement measures when they took control of the state. They'd set up a coalition of constituencies for whom their ideas would resonate, um, bundling together finance, shareholders, the media, um, fearful traditional middle classes and upwardly mobile working class people, giving them each of them a little bit, hmm. just enough. Hmm. Um, and it comes along at the right time because, because in the context of the crisis, they had the right conditions for a general feeling of threat among the middle classes and the upwardly mobile working classes, the perception that their state, in inverted, quant- in inverted commas, was becoming ungovernable and chaotic. Yeah. The conflict between different class interests had um, declined to the point where the cross-class cooperation to resolve the crisis was seemed impossible. Mm. It seemed that you could not get, like, unions and... Like, the unions were put in a, were in a position whereby they could not not ask for the things that they were asking for and the government and the powers behind it, the patrician, the old patrician class, they could not afford not to give it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so the, the bourgeois class has to look to its own interests mm. above that of any kind of loyalty to the nation or the state. It's weird that that's, in the histories, that that's somehow not how it was written, that there's yeah. a, a resurgence of nationalism. And there is a reformat of nationalism, but... It's purely class interests that drive neoliberalism. Previously, there was a kind of general sense of cooperation with the quid pro quo that the basic capitalist relations would still exist. Yeah. You know, um, They not only needed to like the ideas, they needed to be convinced that there was no alternative. The reforming of the state, the reformatting of the state was not only beneficial to them, but considered absolutely necessary. Hmm. Um and so, like, returning to, again, to what Wheatman said, um, so she says about the term rose in popularity in the 70s and 80s, its current usage tends to centre on austerity, with Labour supporters using the term to mean those who advocate austerity. Hmm. Um, that's not entirely wrong, but it's not the whole story. Like, no, not the whole uh, She continues, uh, this is an attempt to deride sound policies by associating them with the worst aspects of their accompanying ideological extremes. Just as democratic, yeah, that's the question, isn't it? Just as democratic socialism isn't the same as communism, neoliberalism isn't the same as pure, unadulterated Thatcherism. The blanket use of the term neoliberalism is little more than a form of shoddy political propaganda. So I have a basic problem with the way that the words she used of advocate Hmm. and sound and um, uh, like centering, Hmm. like she's talking about. An ide- like in a Marxist phrase, an idealistic view of ideology. Hmm. So there's like Marx has like a lot. He writes a lot on um, the two different ways of approaching kind of the evolution of ideas and how those ideas relate to the world around us. So she's positing a view, the idealist view, where uh, everybody gets together, talks, lays out their ideas, and the best one gets decided on. Hmm. 
right? Whether by democratic means, consumer means, whatever funnel you want to push it through. And that gets decided in the marketplace of ideas, to use a very neoliberal term. Yeah. And then it gets done. From an idealist view, the physical world is made by these ideas. Yeah. It comes out of it. It's constructed entirely from it. Materialists, like Marxists, say it's the other way around. That you don't come into the world... These ideas don't come into the world clean and pure. They are made by people. They're embedded in notions of class, gender, racial assumptions. I mean, Marx even says, we do not set out from what men say, imagine, conceive, or from what men narrated as narrated, thought of, imagined, conceived, in order to arrive at men in the flesh. We set out from real active men, and on the basis of their process, we demonstrate the development of ideological reflexes. So in the materialist camp, thoughts are not, which, you know, I'm in, hmm. I find it much more fucking convincing thoughts and ideas are constructed based on the physical needs and wants of people these ideas will reflect their material conditions and uh, these 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 ideas will reflect the material conditions of the people who are making the ideas hmm. and she doesn't take into account the fact that like the purpose of ideas in a class society is to uphold, manage, or extend the relations that allow the ruling class to rule the ideas of the ruling class in every epoch um, are the ruling material force of society, which at the same time is its ruling intellectual force. Hmm. That's a very well-trodden Marx quote. She can't account for the extension of neoliberalism into everyday life because she insists on seeing, almost to an ideological level, and I, like, she insists on having this idealistic view of how neoliberalism came to be. It was an idea that popped into someone's hmm. head and a lot of people said, oh, that seems like a good idea, yeah. let's make neoliberalism. Yeah. And it's it's not true. They're not like you can't separate neoliberalism as an economic doctrine from neoliberalism as social policing or, or neoliberalism fair, as it social did force. Just pop into someone's head like a bullet into Andy's head. <laughs> <laughs> it popped into it popped into her head like uh, the drop of a Chilean dissident falling into the Pacific. Yeah. Ideas are not successful just because they're successful. Hmm. They're successful because whoever's proposing them it appeals to a coalition of people with material interests that are improved by the idea, by this reorientation, especially when you have something as kind of epoch-shaking and different, like as, ra as radical as neoliberalism. Mm. And so she complains about like left-wingers, like conceptions of neoliberalism being almost overwhelming in that, you know, they point at something and say neoliberalism, mm. you know, but it's because she can't conceive of neoliberalism as moving beyond the bits that she's concerned with. Like even many current followers of Austrian economics, like the heirs to Hayek, mm. would look at modern neoliberalism as so divergent from Hayek's original ideas that they regard modern capitalism as basically socialism. But like that's what, you know, the big red mare, Kane, yeah. yeah. as an Austrian economist, yeah. would say that modern capitalism is crony capitalism. Therefore, it's like it's Hayek's conception of what socialism is. It's vested interests yeah. and all that kind of thing. And I get all my economics advice from a man who can tear the door off a steel cage. Yeah, or can he Not do anymore. it anymore? Yeah. I do not think he can. Uh, well, we'll see come <laughs> uh, October, whenever Crown Jewel is. It's, it's, oh. it's soon, isn't it? Is it's he like, going to be there, Kane? Uh, oh, yeah, it's him and Undertaker versus uh, Shawn Michaels and Triple H, DX. That's good, because I've always wanted to see the Brothers of Destruction versus DX. It's definitely not something I saw years ago. <laughs> Don't worry. Kane can carry the Undertaker through a match. And Kane can carry, Triple carry H the Undertaker, can... Shawn Michaels. Triple H, yeah. I mean, there's nobody in that match you could carry. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, like <laughs> away from the most prominent living yeah. Austrian econ economist, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> and you know, neoliberal like centrists now and those kind of disappointed Austrian eco eco economists commit the same error. They imagine ideas emerged from whole cloth from the mind and didn't stem from the real world. Neoliberalism didn't spread across the world in the form it did to propagate the ideas, but to support power structures. Mm. That's how it was implemented. Um, and you can see that following through with the, like the UK strand of neoliberalism, um, they started with this, uh, their way of breaking into uh, high, like elite circles was to focus on subversion of industry. And culturally, the main way that Thatcher implemented neoliberalism, aside from the kind of monetaristic economics, was to 
onslaught onto the unions, yeah. like, like absolutely destroy the basis of the labour movement, um, and in fact bring them alongside. Like she managed to breed in a structural reluctance to engage in all-out action. Hmm. They would never be the same again. Um, as well as this, she also oversees um, repressive institutions, initially to control strikes and protests, so she gives extra powers to the police, and later to punish a wide range of behaviour considered harmful to entrepreneurial communities. Mm. So you see the original crisis and the method of solving it creeps into other areas that original neoliberals may, and the economic theory may not have intended. So, for instance, the limitation on the number of strikers allowed to pick it outside a workplace yeah. has an analogue in the recent proliferation of restraining orders, ASBOs, things like that, against demonstrators outside research laboratories, company headquarters, urban public spaces, mm. fracking. Mm. That has a direct through line. Mm. So it doesn't just concern economics, it concerns day-to-day social control. Um, so, but, I mean, obviously, Thatcher uses quite a lot of um, direct tactics and actual violence mm. to accomplish her aims. Um, and while the reorientation of the UK economy was reliant on that violence, nothing when compared to Chile and Argentina, of course, mm. but, you know, David Harvey himself argues that the success of neoliberalism in the US and the UK was a lot more subtle. They had enjoyed a long period of prosperity under the mixed economy, the mm. post-war consensus. So the bourgeois class possibly could not be trusted to remain on side with neoliberal reforms once the crisis was over and not slide back into an Mm. older consensus style. Guaranteed profits, Mm. a seat at the table, all that kind of stuff. As such, neoliberalism in the West was focused much more on gaining hegemony, mobilising Gramscian common sense to mask other realities as well as the reality that the majority of people are losing out on this arrangement. Mm. It's it's a broken democracy, but they still have to vote every five years, and you can't do that if their um, material conditions are worsening. People will, mm. will notice. Um, so they employ like cultural and traditional beliefs, um, values like uh, the Protestant work ethic, um, even the like resurgence in the post-imperial period of the British Empire merchant adventurer. Yeah. All of these things are conjured to mask the reality that people are worse off from this deal. Hmm. The ideologi- these ideological aesthetics draped, draped over material deprivation by Thatcher and Reagan. So Reagan has religious fundamentalism in the US and uh, Margaret Thatcher has a kind of imperial nationalism that she utilises as the aesthetics of the new regime. Um, over the long term they're just as likely to alienate support as to cultivate it. Mm. They're not winning any new followers. They're just making the people who are already there passive to their own to their own losses, yeah. right? So if neoliberalism is going to survive over the long term, and remember that it can't offer the kind of material uh, plenty for the majority that it might offer come election time, it will spin out all these promises but it it fundamentally cannot deliver because it is not set up for that it is mm. set up for rampant inequality for most and most people to condemn them to poverty it is actively working to hurt them mm. um, at some point people look around and notice their parents or grandparents own their own houses when they can only rent that the quality of their working lives is degraded and they're spending more time at work in order to be able to afford less and less gas bill mm. that kind of thing um, so In the second phase of neoliberalism, what's required is a regime of consolidation, able to incorporate a kind of rhetoric of of social solidarity, which had worked so well in the 70s, um, as well as promulgate some kind of twisted ideal of egalitarianism, while maintaining and even extending neoliberal tenets like privatisation and things like that. Um, And counter to Wheatman's assertion, neoliberal, you know, Neoliberalism is not just, she says it's just privatisation. It's not. Although initially, de- like uh, putting economic controls in private hands and privatising were the most obvious instruments you could point to, neoliberalism's remit goes way beyond macroeconomics. The neoliberalism's, neoliberal state is not just one of economic management, but that of social control. They see it as a package. So they're looking to breed a new homo economicus, rising from the ashes of the coddled, inefficient welfare state human. This provided not only a self-sustaining constituency of new entrepreneurs, but it also provides cover during the inevitable like, boom, and, boom and bust recessions mm. that this kind of hyper-capitalism is going 
ensuing. When the state retreats from ownership and control, it's much easier to present the effects of recession as outside the reach of human intervention, except through participation in the market. You can blame yourself if you're poor. You yeah. Um, like, consider workfare. Like, that <clears throat> goes against neoliberal tenets. It's spending a shitload of money on bureaucracy. Mm. Um way more expensive than just giving straight handouts. But what it does, it's designed to engineer a way of thinking about human behaviour that suggests that people don't want direct money, that what they want is to get back into work. Mm. According to neoliberal orthodoxy, it boosts human capital and it boosts their viability as future employees. Mm. You are modelled as an employee. You've changed not only people's circumstances, but people's behaviour by closing off other avenues of political action to remedy remedy poverty. Mm. Um, if you want a property-owning shareholder democracy, as Margaret Thatcher wanted, you need people to who have been taught and led how to behave in the way that shareholders should. So, like, for example, right, my parents um, have never, ever talked about setting up their own business or becoming self-employed. I have never heard them say that. My dad was a telephone engineer. He worked for BT all his, all his life, back from when it was a public, publicly owned property, the GPO. Um, my mum was a nurse for the NHS. Uh, my mum could have gone private um, at any point with her, her knowledge. My dad could have become one of those, like, you know, those, like, self-employed Sky engineers where yeah. they've got Sky on the van, yeah. but they do their own taxes, yeah, yeah. like that kind of thing. But it has never occurred to them. Mm. Now, they were quite lucky to retain their jobs. But under neoliberal logic, it would have made... They've made the wrong choice. Yeah. Now, they're, like, happy with, mm. you know, what they've got. You know, they've managed to, like, get their kids out. Like, get their kids out and mm. they've got a house and everything. And they're, they're perfectly happy where they are. But, like, my partner, on the other hand, her parents are Indian. They came here from Kenya. Um, when their son wanted to make a start in the world, they offered to buy him a corner shop. Mm. Um, like, pull together their savings, buy yeah. him a corner shop. Because that's what you did. Now, the, there are kind of subtle cultural differences. Um, they're immigrants from Kenya. They were locked out of various sectors due to racism. Mm. They've never had the same kind of opportunities. But these are kind of examples of how the opportunities offered to you by a social order fashion the way that you think about things, you know? Mm. Um, so like if you look at um, one of the early examples like council homes mm -hmm. you privatise council homes in order not just to get to get people not to strike because they are more dependent on their personal finances mm -hmm. it closes them in it closes off any uh, idea of solidarity but it also gets people thinking like owners mm. you make sure that ownership even a fragment of it is embedded in every economic decision your family has to make and that fashions you into thinking that the priorities you have for your own family are the same priorities that everyone else in society should should share yeah you know it's changing your basic human nature hmm. you know yeah it's um, that ownership thing that we talked about it last week um the yes, fact that yeah. why you're such a thief yeah <laughs> And of course, like yeah, I mean, it's bro it's it's gotten to the stage now that it's completely broken because not only do people who bought their council houses in the eighties, not only has that all the housing stock been consolidated into a kind of small band of private landlords, hmm. but I am a natural thief because <laughs> I have no connection to uh, property ownership. Yeah, um, yeah, you see their their influence in universities. Why was it so necessary to? Um, make universities private well it was twofold because the logic of private enterprise would only make things better that was their logic but also it was a political move to attack the main center of opposition to theoretical like capitalism theoretical mm. neoliberalism um the big one i always think of with um neoliberalism is like the way that we the way that the government approaches race relations and to an extent the kind of the advertising industry. Like, if you hear of a scheme to help, like, uh, ethnic minority kids, mm. um, it's always something about setting up their own business. And, and ethnic minorities who are lauded are ones who've made their own business um, or who have become, like, uh, sports stars yeah. and have become economically, um, uh, like, self-reliant. Um, that 
Nightmare Academy in Stratford. Mm-hmm. The academy school where um, everyone has to wear business suits. Yeah. Because they're yeah. teaching them how to like dress for success. Yeah. From the age of 11. Oh, it just makes me sad. The logic is still that kind of thing of get out and make something of yourself. Yeah. Not have pride in where you're from like in while still mm. existing there not have pride in your ability to create a good community mm. it's a lot more about i got it well, early on at least it was more, a lot more about i got out of it by yeah. like make, working really really hard at a business yeah there's a lot of other kind of like societal things about the difference between like black teenagers and indian teenagers indian teenagers being encouraged to have more of an entrepreneurial spirit and like model minority shit yeah that goes along with that but that logic that it's impossible to improve the place you're from what you have to do is escape it and transcend it through entrepreneurialism mm. is a very very strong one mm-hmm. um and like you see it as well with um like uh working class communities in ex industrial areas so, like, the Northern Powerhouse and the Midlands Powerhouse, mm. for all of the fact that nothing was done about it, the core concept was to put enough investment, centralised investment in big cities, that then would spread out to create loads of entrepreneurs. Mm. Because those jobs, the, the idea that people need a wage, people need jobs, is obscured because that's damage that the system itself has done to them. Yeah. The system has to be both, it is the problem, but it has to like offer the solution mm. on its own terms. Mm. So it's like, set up pop-up shops, set up an Etsy shop, that kind of shit. Mm. You know, Do not think about why you don't have a job. You don't have a job because of you. It's, it's, I think the um, the push, the entrepreneurial push, hmm. and like Etsy shops are a good example. Yeah, it's one of the things that makes me really ill about neoliberalism. Yeah, and it's the that hobby. Yes, that should be your job. Yes, that bit like I know. Okay, like so we do this when we're not like working. Yeah, but. It's not the same because you don't make any money out of it. But you know what I mean? It'd be like the push to like. Wait, are you not? Sh- are you not taking sponsorships? <laughs> it's not taking much. I've got extra- Raytheon. <laughs> yeah. I've got BAE tattooed on my back. Do you not wonder why I do this naked? Pay me like five quid an episode. But yeah, that marketization of your hobbies is so upsetting. It's even more upsetting where like I see a lot of um, young millennial self-starters. Mm coming up and obviously they like friend you on Instagram and stuff Mm. like that and you see the kind of things that they that some of them put Mm. up there and it's very much like you are already building a brand and it's not a brand based on your skills it's a brand based on who you are Mm. and Mm. that kind of that is I think we've talked about this like privately before but like the biggest hurdle that socialism will have to overcome uh in the kind of realm of of PR and things mm. like that, is overwhelming that message of you can feel better if you just try harder. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of you see it on every single trainer advert. Mm. It's double down on yourself, develop physical and mental toughness, and you will win everything. Yeah. Now, every if you've been in work for a few years. You know that's not fucking yeah, true. Your a- mental and physical toughness has nothing to do with it. But it's a very, very powerful propaganda tool because if you criticise it, you sound like a massive fucking downer. Yeah. I sound like a huge downer when like you see like a Nike advert with a poor kid from Kenya getting their first pair of trainers hmm. and starting to run and then it cuts to like them crossing the line at the Olympics. That's a very... It's propaganda, yeah, it's a but it's emotive. a very emotive, yeah. inspiring story, and it's a huge mountain to climb to get to get that over while not just depressing people. <laughs> it's a real, it's a real problem. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And like, it's hard not to be down as though. Yeah, it is. It's super hard. Um, the other thing I always think of with neoliberalism, the way it kind of gets its fingers into all of our lives. How much contract law do you know now that you have uh, utilities to pay and a mobile phone contract? Um, well, I know quite a lot just because of Holly, because of having to. But yeah. you have, but you have, but, um, but I know what you mean. Like um, the amount of bullshit that you have to go through for that shit yeah. is insane. 
and like when you're considering kind of the things that you're told that you you have to have you know like insurance and things like that the the things that you're probably never going to use but at some point might be really useful like the amount of bureaucracy and kind of just negotiating skills mm. that you have to learn just to get like a mobile phone contract yeah. or check your credit score mm. apply for a mortgage mm. the amount of you have to become a business lawyer mm. you have to become a business lawyer to be an owner and that's that's like a psychic echo because that's the kind of thing that runs our society it's yeah. it's owners it's contract law it's negotiation and it's bureaucracy around like business law mm. it's it's crazy so like take healthcare mm. um if if she was correct if we, Francis Wheatman was correct in the way that yeah. she uh conceptualized neoliberalism mm. margaret thatcher was a privatization jackhammer mm-hmm. that plowed into everything mm. um she had the police on her side she had all the all of uh government all of this all of the state power she could want mm. um because i mean she used it to crush the union so there would have been no particular reason to not use it to crush the nhs and that would have been in accordance with mm. her ideology but why did she not mm. you know because thatcher recognized that there was still a power block that she could did not have the ability to overcome. Mm. You know, it's not it's not just that privatization happened and then it was over. It's that each little thing has its own existence in the world. This mm. is materialism again over idealism. It's not that an idea comes in and is good. Mm. It's that people calculate the uh, uh, chances of an idea working based on material circumstances and the NHS was too big a pill to swallow mm. all at once. Yeah. Of course, over the corresponding like Decades. 40 and years like, yeah, right. um it's basically become a state provider in a private market mm. um and you know it's not one of the things that has so fucked the nhs is that privatization is not just a thing that happens it's not just a switch in owners mm. it's not just a switch in suppliers as i've mentioned with other things it has psychological and effects on your your subjectivity yeah you become a consumer mm. of the nhs the nhs becomes more concerned with how profitable how much money mm. if you're working for them how much money you are costing and the money that you're getting back it's why there's like obviously huge problems around the nhs and to a certain extent i think they use that confusion to advance privatization more oh, all the time. because there's no way that you can grade how much value a nurse adds to her salary oh yeah you know that's an actual exercise that my mum had to do she had to write up how much value she was adding to the salary she was getting Mm. it's insane weird um, she treats tb she inoculates babies my dad didn't have to do that when he was working in the private sector yeah yeah doing the same job as when he was working for the nhs but he didn't have to um that it was more all about gouging and being rewarded for being a gouger yeah was it fully private where your dad worked yeah, you work for Priory. Oh, right. Well, right. I say it's private. It's um, there. There's a lot of NHS patients paid paying to... absurd amounts of money a week to have a bed in a secure unit. Yeah, um, it was gross. The only thing still tying the NHS. He thought it was gross. That's the only um, thing in t- tying the NHS to its original principles is the free at the point of delivery. Yeah, that's the thread. That's the only thread that's left, and mm. they have chipped away at everything else. Mm. And like I say, it doesn't just. It doesn't just affect the kind of people in that they don't see themselves as part of a whole using the NHS. Mm. It establishes a kind of hierarchy. Mm. Um, It encourages a culture of competitiveness, which necessarily means fucking someone over. Someone Mm. wins, someone loses. That logic has seeped into every pore Mm. of most of our public services and Mm. um, the NHS itself. And of course, at the end of the day, it implies hierarchy. Mm. The the problem with the NHS in trying to mimic being like other private enterprises is that it has taken on a really, really expensive managerial cast mm. that whose skills are of efficiency and like co- their competence is way overrated. Mm-hmm. It created, I mean, th- this was like the particular circumstances of of like British neoliberalism. This whole like consultant class has risen up with no real 
clue as to what they were doing. They weren't mm. useful for the businesses. They no. were useful for the implementation of neoliberal logic. Mm. They were the ones, they were the overseers. They were the ones who oversaw that market logic was inserted into the companies they took over. Mm. That was their purpose. They don't make these places any better. Early neoliberal like consultants would come in, um, they would make huge profits for shareholders. Mm. Again, neoliberal logic, you should think like a shareholder. If, if you own property... If you're a share, you know, shareholder, you own property, you will know how to manage things better because you have an ownership in it. Yeah. And what these consultants did, they were brought into companies, they liquidated like almost all of it. There was a huge spike in shares for a few quarters, and then the company tanked because it had no capacity to produce anything left. Now, that not only reflects how they view their duty to shareholders in a political process... But it also uh, indicates the control of the financial sector. The like I think it's called the financialization of the UK economy. Mm. It made perfect sense to do all of that to insert this very expensive consultant class to essentially destroy mm. manufacturing in this country. Mm. It made perfect sense, the logic. It was horrible, <laughs> but it made perfect, perfect sense. And that leaks into everything else. Their, their ideas leak into something as good and as, I don't want to say pure, but as good and pure mm. as the the ideal yeah. of the NHS is yeah. and turn it into this hierarchical, grinding, profit-making thing that's tanking. Yeah. Neoliberalism tanks economies mm -hmm. fully. Mm. It's, um, it's even like that way of referring to like the like when you see talks of renationalization mm. they use the same kind of language like as being stakeholders yes in things yeah. which i'm not pleased with yes that because i want things nationalized not all of us having a share in it yeah even jeremy corbyn as radical as he is mm. is not radical no everything he approaches is like that workplace democracy thing mm -hmm. it, that we talked about a few episodes ago, it's owning shares. Yeah, it's it. It has. I think we mentioned this at the time as well. It has as much appeal to businesses that are in trouble mm -hmm. as it does to the workers who own the shares. Yeah, and it, I, I get it. It's a you know transitional method, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. I'm all in favour of it. But it still operates under those same rules of logic. Yeah. The most radical opposition we've had to neoliberalism in f ever, in yeah. 40 years. And it still operates under those same rules because those are the rules of the game. They are the only rules that he can apply to appear sensible or, in Francis Wheatman's words, sound. Mm. It's an exclusionary term because she never explains it. No. Yeah, the idea that Francis Wheatman and the rest of the kind of new Labour remnant present is like... Neoliberalism is this limited time set of policy instruments that adapted the UK economy to the global environment. Yeah. But what's most wrong about the way she presents it is in what, again, is admittedly a very small tweet storm. It's probably not the extent of her thought, although I can't imagine it goes much further. Um, neo is It's just neoliberalism goes far beyond that. The changes in property ownership, in the form of property ownership, brought about by neoliberalism which, remember, did not fundamentally in any way alter capitalist relations of production. No. It took the same ones that have existed since the 18... Yeah. and continued them on. But it has had huge effects on human subjectivity. It promotes individualism and represses any notion of a collective non-profit-seeking solution to any imaginable problem. Hmm. And even after decades of like neoliberal reconstruction, present-day policy failures are still being attributed to unions, mm. regulations, bureaucrats, and to like scaremongering mm. special interest groups or advocacy groups. Mm. They still use the same rule book. So while a surface reading of what neoliberalism will tell you is about small states, privatisation and low taxes, it's just as much about rebooting populaces to think more like the kind of people that would fit their system. They can talk about the totalitarian regimes of the Eastern Bloc. They can talk about the new Soviet man and, and totalitarianism and all that kind of stuff. But they have been changing human nature for 40 years. Mm -hmm. They've been doing exactly the same thing. To quote Margaret Thatcher, economics are the method, the object is to change the soul. She said that. And it is right. That's what neoliberalism is. Uh -huh. Do you want? Uh -huh.
that's not bad. There's tons of ways out of it. Oh yeah. I know you look you look you look really sad and I didn't intend when I was writing that I actually didn't think it was a downer. I thought it was like No, no, look bit sad. It, it's, it felt it, I think, clearer. I think also I am um, about well, why I was so mad about Frances Wheatman. Yeah, know? yeah, she no, yeah, she fucking oh. Yeah. Just the just the paucity of her outlook. It's so restricted. Yeah, it's so not what. What would you know that it you is? You, you've never won an award. I've hey, I won an award. I I gave you the good boy award when you got your <laughs> masters. I did do that. I was manager of the month in our office fantasy football in March twenty sixteen. <laughs> I think it was. I had a bit for your masters in economic history. You never would have got it. <laughs> It's all profit and loss, mate. It's all profit and loss. <laughs> uh, so that's us for this week. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast. Follow me at BM Bergamo and follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing. And we will see you next week. Great. Bye. Bye. Fighting am the least about the fighting game When Mr. Hoover said to cut my...